This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. The news over the last couple of weeks has been, what direction is the economy headed in? So, some of our CBS News 2020 reporters out on the campaign trail went out and asked people about it. How much confidence do you have in the economy going forward and, and why? Well... Um, so far it's been really good. I mean, I have a little bit in stocks, but not much, but it seems like they're growing. Well, I don't believe there's going to be a recession. I believe that's a complete scam. Um, I have some issues with President Trump's approach on trade, mainly because of China. I don't think tariffs work. I think tariffs ultimately end up being passed on to the consumer. And I believe that we're headed toward a recession. You can see some of the signs with some of the prices going up on some of the everyday goods. But what is the economy anyway? Is it the job market? Is it the stock market? Is it the unemployment rate? Is it all of those things? What is it that Americans are looking at and what should they be looking at? We'll unpack all of that on this week's episode of Where Did You Get This Number? First up, we are joined by Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst and host of the Jill on Money podcast. So, Jill... You know, people judge the economy by their own pocketbook and they judge it by looking at big numbers like the stock market. But what what do the pros look at when they gauge the health of the U.S. economy? Yeah, I mean, what's fascinating to me is that there's a real disconnect between the economy, right, and the market. The stock market is a reflection and one component of what's going on in the economy. But remember, it's a scorecard for how corporate America is doing, how much money companies are making. What most economists are looking at when they talk about the economy is the output of the nation. So meaning that what goods and services are being produced and economists try to take all that information, engage where you are in the process, in the cycle, and then also maybe try to find policy prescriptions to balance things out in a way that would foster more growth. Talk to me about this word cycle, because as people talk about whether or not there's going to be a recession or whether or not this expansion, which is already the longest in history, can continue, they rely on historical models. They say, well, cycles only last too long. What do we mean by that? Is it that eventually people just run out of things to buy with their money and demand slows down? How do you define that? Well, I think the best way this was ever actually described to me was to think of waves in an ocean, ups and downs, right? The swells of an ocean. Cycles are not all equal. So you can have a cycle that lasts a little bit longer, one that's a little bit shorter, one where things go up more dramatically, a big wave, and then one where there's like kind of more gentle waves. So a cycle is simply that things move in a predictable pattern over time. 
the pattern of the ups and downs, the magnitude of the ups and the downs are what we never know until it's already happened. There's this actual organization that's called the National Bureau of Economic Research, and the NBER has a committee of people called the Dating Committee, and it's not a swipe left, swipe right, right kind of organization. <laughs> and what the Dating Committee does is they judge in retrospect whether the economy has gone up and peaked and then when it has gone down and built out a bottoming base, a trout. So that's why it may be surprising for people to look back and look at that great recession. It actually, according to the dating committee, started in December of 2007. But in December of 2007, I can guarantee you if I went and looked at what the consumer confidence figures were in that month, it did not flash a recession sign. But in retrospect, what we could see was things were already slowing down. The housing market had already slowed down. And the recession lasted until June of 2009, according to the dating committee. But the job market didn't bottom out until the beginning of 2010. So all of these things are like interesting and academic studies. But in your real life, you didn't care when it began and end. You knew that things were tough in 2008 and 2009, well into 2010. Even once the recovery had begun, a lot of people were still hurting. So who cares when it started and ended? Well, on that point, Jill... We just did this poll where we found that 38 percent of Americans were optimistic about the economy going forward and 35 percent were pessimistic. The rest of them were unsure. Now, the unsure number tells you that folks aren't quite sure how to read the data. That's why they listen to folks like you and and others, of course. But with optimism still slightly outweighing pessimism, is it self-determining in some sense? As long as people think that things are going to be good, don't they keep buying? Don't they keep spending and keep fueling an expansion? Well, I know that you would be the first one to tell me, because you understand statistics, that what you've just described to me is a moment in time, this moment in time. And if in a month from now we are in another phase of a trade war and we have seen Great Britain tumble out of the European Union with a hard Brexit and the globe has slowed down to a crawl, businesses pull back, and all of a sudden, instead of hearing me come on the air and talk about job creation, we're now, for the first time in 10 years, talking about job loss, that that public opinion would turn dramatically. So what I would say about that is you feel optimistic or pessimistic based on what's going on in your own life, and that can change very quickly. And on that point... Can you explain to folks exactly how tariffs work, where are they imposed, and who pays for them? So when a tariff is imposed, the importing company will pay that tariff. And so at that moment, that importing company can do one of a couple of things. One is they could say, hey, you know what? I paid five bucks extra for this thing. I'm selling it for 12 bucks, so I'll still collect my seven. I'm not going to raise my prices. They could say, I paid an extra five bucks for this thing. I'm now going to sell it for $17 instead of $12. Or they can split the difference. I'm going to pass some of that along. But remember that the, the funky thing about a tariff is not just that it can increase the price for the consumer, but it can increase prices globally. It can increase prices. If you work for a domestic producer, you might say, I work for a big company that only does business in the United States. But you may also find out that that the company uses parts from elsewhere in the world. You may find that 
the U.S.-China trade conflict is spilling over into other countries. For example, Germany, huge exporter, is slowed down to a crawl and maybe even facing a contraction. That's not the United States. That's not China. That is one of the world's five largest economies that is slowing down simply because global trade is slowing down. So tariffs have unintended consequences beyond the borders of the places where they are imposed. At the end of the day, when a tariff is levied, it is generally bad for consumers. There are a few winners. Sometimes a domestic producer can be a winner. But generally speaking, trade wars do not usually end well for anyone. Is there a consensus among the pros about the direction of the economy, or at least one that you think is convincing? Well, I think that the convincing idea is that there has been trend growth since, let's say, in the last five, six, seven years of about two to two and a quarter percent on an annualized basis. If you look back to the end of the recession to the end of, let's call it 2017, growth was about two and a quarter percent on an annualized basis. We got a corporate tax cut that was huge in 2018, and that allowed growth to spike to just under three percent annualized. And what we now know in 2019 is growth has slowed down. And it is slowing down enough around the world and in the United States to get people nervous and predicting when the next recession is going to come. I don't know if anyone knows exactly when the next recession is going to come. But what I do know is that we could almost perfectly predict that 2018 would be a one-year note. That tax increase was a bit of a sugar high. It was a one-year increase And that we've now gone back to the statistician's model of we've now regressed to the mean. We've gone back to what our trend growth would have been without the tax cut. And so I don't know if the recession is going to come this year, next year, the year after. What I'm very smart enough to say is just like a bear market, the recession will come. The bear market will come. You don't need to predict when it will come. The best thing you can do is control the things you can control. So if you are feeling optimistic and you do have a job and you are making more money now, now's a great time to start paying down some of that consumer debt. Now's a great time to beef up your emergency reserve fund before the next recession hits. Now is the time where you take that, that your grandparents' advice and you say, build up that rainy day fund. Because when times are good, that's when you do it. You don't look to try to make big decisions once the bad times have occurred. As always, the excellent advice as well as the insight from Jill Schlesinger, host of Jill on Money, CBS News business analyst and friend of this podcast. Much appreciated, Jill. Thank you so much for having me. It's great. In the latest CBS News poll, we asked Americans if they were optimistic or pessimistic going forward about the economy, and optimism slightly outweighed pessimism. We asked people what it was that they had to be optimistic about, and the job market came out as the top measure. Less so, a little more mixed, was the stock market, and then trade policy and world events came out lower. In fact, more people said that that was reason for pessimism about the economy. So we saw a mix, not only overall optimism, 
but also some components of the economy and policy on the horizon that made people a little bit unsure. It's a reminder that as you gauge and look at how people say the economy is doing, that the economy is a large concept and people may be looking at different sets of data as you get those evaluations. Lastly, I would add, partisanship, political partisanship, often has a lot to do with how people answer these questions. It's not necessarily irrational. They may be building in their expectations or optimism if their party is controlling things or pessimism if their party isn't as they make those evaluations. One way to read the poll numbers going forward. In a moment, we'll be back with Stephen Gandell of CBS News Money Watch to talk about why the market might be going up, why it might be going down these days, what impact a tweet might have. I'm here with Stephen Gandell. Stephen is a reporter for CBS Money Watch, a veteran of writing about Wall Street and the markets for... for too, long. <laughs> too long. Too long, too long. 96, since pre-dot-com uh, uh, bubble. All right, so we'll, we'll put a specific number on it. We'll just call him, we'll just call him a vet. He knows his stuff, folks. He knows his stuff. So we've heard over the last week people arguing, well, the economy is booming. The economy is doing great. Unemployment is low by one measure. And then we've heard other people saying, well, between some of the bond market, some of the inverted yield curve, which which they they talked about, the economy may be slowing, even headed for using the R word recession. What are the arguments for and against? Well, I think the people that are kind of doing the forecasting, that are betting, the people are in the market there, they're concerned about global factors. They're concerned about the inverted yield curve. They're concerned about the fact that it's just the economy doesn't usually expand for this long, right? It's usually we have recessions. They happen less than every 10 years, right? So it seems weird to keep on expanding, right? And we've made, a lot of people have made good returns in the stock market. So they're nervous about keeping those returns. So the stock market and the yield curve are kind of reflecting a belief of investors that this good, these good times have to come to end because just because they normally do. But when you look out there in the economy, the good times seem to be lasting much longer than normal. But uh, job growth has continued for longer and consumer confidence has continued for longer. People keep spending despite the fact that that wages haven't gone up as much. If that's the case, why is it, at least in theory, that an economy and an expansion eventually runs out of steam? Is it that just demand dries up because people have everything they need or is it more complicated than that? Well, it usually happens, at least the last few times it happens, because people keep buying to a point where they get themselves into too much debt and they can't keep buying. Sometimes it happens because, and this was something that not talked about a lot, but in 2008, seven and eight, oil prices went up, right? And that increased everyone's energy costs, and that, and that meant there was less money for consumers. We also had a financial bubble in 2009 where a lot of people took out loans. They, they were able to get loans that it turned out they couldn't afford. Sometimes, like, there's just general confidence uh, problems, and people say, oh, wait a sec, I'm scared. The economy looks like it's going to be bad, and so therefore I'm going to stop spending. So it's kind of a reinforcing thing. And and even though the vast majority of stocks are still owned by the wealthy, I think the economy, for whatever reason, which I don't think we figured out, for whatever reason, is more tied to the stock market than it used to be. And so I do think a downturn in the stock market can sometimes turn into is more likely these days to turn into a downturn in the real economy. But we haven't seen that. And, and the stock market, while ro- rocky now, 
right? It's still relatively near all-time highs, and and it's still trading at a relatively high valuation. And I think that's a thing that's really a problem, too, for the U.S. economy, that the stock market still trades at around 17 times expected earnings. And, and usually stocks trade around where their expected growth rate is. And the U.S. economy hasn't pulled out of a low growth rate like we expected, like Donald Trump used to Maybe he still does, but he was promising a 5% GDP growth. And we're still at a kind of around a 2% GDP growth. And that gap between where stocks are valued and where the real growth rate of the economy is, is a big deal. And and that could be why the stock market's repricing. And that could be why bonds are repricing, because of these expectations were off. And that might not actually be a problem for the economy. It might be more of a problem for the stock market, unless, as we talked about, the stock market is a bigger problem for the economy than it used to be. When we look at the market and we look at presidential tweets over the last week or two, we've seen it go up and down. Now, the tweets have been about trade policy, which reportedly might concern some investors. And then there might be a trade deal and the stock market goes up again. What's the mechanism behind that at the market where people are looking at what the president says, looking at what the president might tweet and saying, I want to buy, I want to sell, I want to invest, I don't want to invest. Is that happening on a minute-by-minute basis? Is it happening on a day-by-day basis? Can you take us through what a trader does when this happens? So I think the stock market is very sensitive to trade news. And and the reason is because, again, the stock market mostly reflects larger multinational uh, companies. And those companies now get about half of their sales from overseas. But more importantly than that, just the thing we just talked about, that the expected growth rate of the U.S. economy is something like 2 or 3%. And the expected earnings growth of these companies is, is in the teens and valued for 17%. The only way these companies can grow more, right, is to get more and more of their sales overseas in China and places where things are growing faster than the U.S. economy. So the stock market is very tied to trade news and what Trump might say about it. I don't know if the regular economy is as tied to that. And because so much of stock market valuations is based on future growth, when you kind of start to imagine a world where the large U.S. companies are cut off from China or other fast-growing markets, then you start to get really nervous about uh, stocks, about the market. Great stuff. Great analysis. Stephen Gandell. Now, CBS News Money Watch reporter, really appreciate it. This is great. Thanks for having me on. That's going to wrap this episode of Where Did You Get This Number? I'm Anthony Salvanto. Let me thank, as always, my great producer, Alan Pang, for pulling this all together, along with everyone at CBS News Radio for making it possible. Let me give special thanks to the 2020 campaign reporters out there on the trail who pulled all that sound from people uh, that you heard before. Lecrae Mitchell, Zachary Hudak, and Jack Terman, along with special thanks to Face the Nation producer Jake Miller and CBS News Radio producer Jamie Benson for helping along with that as well. And finally, thank you for listening. Talk to you next week. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. 
Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.